chapter 10. Our text this morning plays uh, an extremely important role in the context of Paul's overall point in this section of chapters 9 through 11. In chapter 9, Paul showed that it's always, always the word of God's promise. It's never good works or the circumstances of one's birth or their inheritance that determines his selection in history to be a part of God's plan, just as it determines election to salvation in Christ. God's selection of Israel didn't guarantee them eternal salvation, but called them to a, to a, a particular role in the working out of God's plan in history. Paul then proves from Scripture that now there are Gentiles who are called my people, while the Israelites, except for the remnant preserved by God's grace, have come under judgment. Paul then applies that to the makeup of the church and the unbelief of Israel as a whole at the end of chapter 9. And so as chapter 10 opens this morning, Paul is going to dig more deeply in describing why unbelieving Israelites have failed to be included. And he reveals that it's their own fault. It is not the fault of the Word of God. God did not mislead the Israelites or cover things up. They knowingly chose to misapply his word to them. So verses 1 through 13 of chapter 10 are about hearing the Old Testament correctly. That's the purpose this section serves. Believing it, confessing Jesus as Lord and calling upon his name and being saved. These verses show us the way of interpreting the Old Testament that ties it to the gospel Paul preaches. What kind of righteousness a person tries to establish on the one hand or expects to receive on the other hand depends on how one reads the Old Testament. Any or all of the Old Testament can be read very rightly or very wrongly. But the entire witness of the Old Testament points to one means of finding life for whomever desires it, calling on the name of the Lord. Zeal for God to please Him is not just dangerous, but deadly when it replaces faith. Zeal for God must be according to what God has revealed to be His will, or it will kill us. Let me pray, and we'll look at these verses. Father, we're thankful this morning together as one people for Your Word that is perfect and inerrant and infallible, inspired and authoritative because it is Your Word and not ours. God, help me preach it this morning. Help me make the passage clear. Help all who hear to understand. Father, may we all receive Christ from this passage. I ask and pray this in His name and for His sake in our midst. Amen. So we're going to look at chapter 10 beginning in verse 1. By the way, I'm going to switch back to the ESV next week. Old habits die hard. I was trying to use a new version. I can't get into it as easily as my, my old ESV. So just to, if, if you bought a new King James... I'm sorry, you can give a, a receipt to Ben, and Ben will reimburse you out of his own pocket for that. So thank you, Ben. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. So in light of his teaching in this section, notice that Paul addresses his fellow Christians as his brethren, Jews and Gentiles, while speaking of his kinsmen according to the flesh as Israel. His sincere desire for ethnic Israelites is that they may be saved because they're lost. And salvation is not 
a matter of fervent intent and desire, but of deeper recognition and acknowledgement of what God has revealed in His Word is the way. Verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, Israel who needs to be saved, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, Paul knows this zeal very well. He used to have it. He used to live by it. He used to strive with every fiber of his being to become righteous. So much so that he persecuted the church that the majority of Israel thought was this blasphemous farce. When Paul says their zeal for God is not according to knowledge, he doesn't mean they didn't have the right information or didn't have access to it. He means they heard it, they certainly did know it, but they ignored it. They failed to arrive at that deeper recognition, spiritual recognition, rather than fleshly, of what God was saying to them in the Old Testament. Why? Why did they do that? Because they wanted to establish their own righteousness before God. That colored how they read the Torah of the Old Testament. Paul says Israel was told the proper way to obtain salvation, but they didn't want to do it that way. Seeking to establish their own righteousness is the twisted form that their zeal for God took. They weren't withheld the knowledge of God's Word. They knowingly rejected it because they wanted to establish their own righteousness rather than receive by faith the righteousness that comes from God. Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Listen to that verse again. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The word in there is telos, goal. Yes, as Paul taught in Romans 6 and 7, the dawn of the new age in Christ and his gospel means the end of the tyranny of the law as a code that demands obedience, that will kill us in the hands of King's sin. But it is not limited to that meaning here in verse 4. That would miss the point in the flow of Paul's argument about how the Jewish people misread their Old Testament Bible. They pursued the righteousness that Torah has to give, but they did not achieve it because they did not read it as what it is. A Torah which points and testifies to a Savior, to Jesus Christ. The following Old Testament texts that Paul is going to read or cite here reveal the Christ whom Paul preaches. And that's the argument he's actually making. He was there. They should have seen it. They didn't want to see it. The entire argument of Romans has this way of interpreting the Old Testament that Paul uses here, underlying it. That the fulfillment of the real intent of the Old Testament is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified as Paul preaches it. Law-free, by grace through faith for salvation, for everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile. In these next verses, Paul is going to show how the Old Testament points straight to Christ when it's read under the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, not of the flesh. That's what 1 Corinthians 2, 9-14 through talks about. There's a fleshly way of trying to understand and read the Bible, and there's a spiritual way of trying to read and understand the Bible. Verse 5, 4, Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. Leviticus 18.5 Verse 6 
But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? This is the Old Testament he's talking about. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. He's quoting there Deuteronomy 30 verses 12 through 14 with Deuteronomy 8 and 9 in the background context. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. In the flow of that text, that was being taught in Deuteronomy. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. Paul is literally teaching us to find Christ everywhere in the lines and words of the Old Testament. But I don't see Jesus there. Right? The name of Christ isn't mentioned. Messiah isn't mentioned. And yet Paul says that's what the text was saying. He's teaching us how to interpret the Old Testament. He's there. Beloved, He's always there. Paul's whole point here is to prove that this kind of interpretation is the key to properly, spiritually understanding the Old Testament, which Israel did not do. One can enter the Old Testament with the same spirit Paul did then, or one has to resist that kind of interpretation and try to interpret it another way to fit their conclusions or their preconceived notions. The text may look and sound very different, like it's talking about something else, but Paul says Christ is the goal of all of it. He's the intention when it was written, meaning all Scripture finds its meaning in Christ, very specifically as a Savior. We should have no issue with this. If we were listening to Jesus in texts like John 5.39 when He said, Moses wrote about Me. How did you not see Me in the writings of Moses? So of course Deuteronomy testifies to salvation through Jesus Christ. In Acts 10.43, when Peter taught that all the prophets bear witness to the fact that forgiveness of sins comes through the name of Jesus, he's also telling us to read Christ into the Old Testament text, into every single prophet, where, by the way, he's never mentioned by name. And yet Peter says every single one of them bore witness to the fact that forgiveness of sins comes through the name of Christ. The prophets bear witness to salvation through Jesus Christ. That is the point of all Scripture. That's how we interpret the Old Testament. We must make Jesus and the righteousness, which is by faith, the interpretive key to all Scripture. It's not the covenants. It's not the dispensations. It's not Israel. It's not moral living. It is Christ and His righteousness given to us in the gospel that we use as the grid to interpret all Scripture. In Leviticus 18.5 that Paul quoted, Moses wrote about how righteousness can be obtained through the law. You do all of it, you live. But the righteousness Paul says justifies us before God is the righteousness of faith. And it speaks in the Old Testament, telling them in Deuteronomy 30 that since they would not be able to do these things and live by them. They were not to become righteous by their own pursuit. That's what Deuteronomy 30 was telling them. But by belief in the promise. The Deuteronomy text was pointing to Christ as the object of their belief and therefore the source of their righteousness. 
Have faith. Have faith is what the Old Testament was fundamentally teaching. God is going to provide your righteousness one day through a Savior that I will send to you. All this is to prove what Paul said in verse 4. Christ is the end of the law, the goal of the Torah for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the Old Testament wasn't trying to get the Israelites to try to become righteous through the law by pursuing obedience and righteousness, but gave the law to expose them as hopeless sinners, increasing their sin, that they might come to the end of their rope and trust God's promise and believe by faith for their salvation in the Christ who was to come. These verses are a note here in Romans of how important the words heart and mouth are. Way back in Deuteronomy 30.14, their counterpart here is believe and confess in verses 9 and 10 of Romans 10. In fact, let me read Deuteronomy verse or chapter 30. I'll read verses 11 and 14 to you. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? This is why we talk about Deuteronomy 8 and 9 in the background context. Paul is putting these together. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. They were told it was beyond them to do the law. They could not pursue it and achieve it. They couldn't reach up into heaven. They couldn't reach over the sea. They couldn't reach into the grave. But also that God had revealed this to them so that they would trust Him in their hearts by faith and say with their mouths, You will make me righteous. You will save me. You will deliver me. They refused because they wanted to establish their own righteousness, Paul says in verse 3. In other words, they understand, they understood very well what the law was trying to say to them. They said, no, 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 we want to do it that way. We want to pursue our own righteousness. We do this today. We hear the free offer of the gospel. We say in our minds, in our flesh, there's no way that's how it is. There's no way forgiveness is free. There's no way I receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. There's no way all these sins can just be forgiven by the blood of Jesus and human beings can just become righteous by faith in Him. We have to put in something. We have to do it ourselves. We have to give some effort. We have some skin in the game, right? Because they wanted to establish their own righteousness in their zeal for God, which we would think is a very good thing to be zealous, passionate to please God. They attained no righteousness whatsoever and stood condemned. Verse 11, For the Scripture says, Whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. That's Isaiah 28, 16. Faith was taught as the means to righteousness throughout the Old Testament. Back in Romans 9, 33, those who stumbled over Jesus, the promised Savior, when He came, rather than believed in Him for their salvation, for their righteousness, they would be put to shame because their own righteousness would be proven absolutely worthless. But those who believe in Jesus for their salvation, whether Jew or Gentile, are granted His righteousness, which will never put us to shame, but always be pleasing to God and always glorify God. Verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich 
to all who call upon Him. That's the opposite of being zealous to please Him. Call upon Him. You can't please Him. Four, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you want to be saved? Or do you want to accomplish your own rescue? That's the fundamental question question that Scripture is asking. Do you want to be saved? Or do you want to try to accomplish your own rescue? And to want to be saved is denying all that you are and all that you could contribute to your salvation. Zeal for God. Knowing that God is there and you ought to honor Him and glorify Him and obey Him. And so saying, I'm going to live the right way. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. That will kill you. You will at the end be put to shame. Because your righteousness before God is as filthy rags, worthless garments. Disgusting and gross to God. If you want to be saved, you must do one thing. Call on the name of the Lord who saves by grace through faith. That is what you need to do. That's all you can do. Receive the truth of God, which says that you cannot, by your pursuit or effort or zeal or intentions, ever attain to the righteousness God requires. Not before you're a Christian and not after. God doesn't need your righteousness added on to Christ's Christian. That's not why we do good works. The righteousness God requires, the righteousness of Jesus, must be given to us. We can receive it only by faith in Him, by calling on Him, rather than by looking to ourselves. That desire in us to please God in our flesh is not coming from the Holy Spirit. It's antichrist. It's either saying, you can't save me, or you need my help. Both are of the devil. What Christians in here this morning need to repent of pursuing your own righteousness before God. So let's take a step back for a moment and talk about zeal for God in light of all this. Zeal for God has to be according to what God has revealed His will is. Or it will kill us. We don't have the right as Christians, nor were we given the task of this personal pursuit of righteousness and glorifying God. And then we decide all the things that make you righteous. When we do that, we not only hurt ourselves, we hurt others because they're not living up to our standard. Some of us have great zeal for God. We want to please Him genuinely. We want to glorify Him and serve Him. That doesn't always justify our actions. Nor does it excuse 
our spirits. In Romans 10, zeal for God is the fundamental enemy of living by faith instead. We don't live by zeal for God. We live by faith. We walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. We don't determine whether or not we're in or whether or not we're good by what we see and our maturity and our process of change. Absolutely not. We live by faith. Our faith is 100% in the righteousness we cannot see that God says has been granted to us by faith in His Son. It's His righteousness that becomes our own. When we stand before God, we aren't giving the righteousness of Christ and our own bag of what we've done to contribute to it. To assume that it needs our addition is antichrist. One commentator writes, where zeal is prized over the humility that listens and learns, the stage is set for disaster. Listening and learning, that's our posture. It seems like over time, it's like we think we reach this level where we can just kind of relax and we've paid our dues, we've done our thing, we're living right, the people behind us, they don't really get it, they don't really see it. What has the primary method been all of our lives to motivate us to be righteous? What have we normally heard when it's believed that our righteousness is lacking? Where is your zeal for God? Don't you care? Don't you want to serve Him? Don't you want to be more passionate about your pursuit of Christ? Right? That's strange. All that pushes us away from faith alone is the means to righteousness. Which, rather than leading to good works that glorify God and genuinely serving others, it leads us to become stiff-necked, prideful, frankly unbearable people. What do we have to stand before God that isn't a gift to us that we do not possess and can contribute nothing to. What do we have? To have enough zeal for God. That's to pursue righteousness in our own way and by our own standards. It's to know nothing of what we ought to have zeal for. We ought to know that we don't know and don't have it within us to figure out precisely what God requires. But we're still trying to create our own righteousness. I want to do this. I want to do that. And, and I'll give that to God as an offering and He'll be pleased by it. Did God ask for it? Did God say, that's what I want. I want you to take that and sanctify that and give it to me. Because that's how we become judgmental and self-righteous. We, our minds are not sharp enough to walk honestly between convictions and beliefs. It's a funny argument. That's my, you know, let's say you have a, a more of a fundamentalist bent in your conviction. So I personally think that to be, let's say I was a woman, which I'm not, okay? I've never claimed to be a woman, never will, okay? But let's say, for the sake of fun, I'm a lady, all right? And I have a conviction that you can't wear 
jeans, you have to wear skirts. Okay? And that's how I believe that you are holy in your dress and you glorify God. Do you really think I believe that for you then it's okay to not do that? Of course I don't. Of course I think you're wrong for wearing pants. If I believe God is glorified by me never wearing pants. Alright? It, it's, it's dishonest. It's dishonest. God doesn't require that. We, we make way too much of our own convictions. In reality, just stick with what the Bible says. And if it doesn't say, then walk freely. And stop. We need to stop making rules that we think are somewhere in there. That's zeal for God that isn't according to knowledge. We ought to know that we don't know precisely what God requires. So instead of creating our own righteousness, we should listen to His Word if we want to truly know what He accepts. And if God has been silent, then we don't know and we don't need to make a rule. Have zeal for studying the Word of God correctly to know Christ through the means He has made known. In our zeal for God, we're constantly trying to emulate the works and lives of others. We're trying to create our own righteousness among the things we desire to offer up to God. It all becomes so personal and individualistic. We don't care about what we actually owe God according to our calling at all. Right? If, if you're a dad, be a dad. If you're a mom, be a mom. If you're an employee, be an employee. If you're a student, be a student. Glorify God in the vocation He has given you. You're fine. You're fine. There is nothing unspiritual about getting up every day and going to work. It is extremely glorifying to God. You are glorifying Him in the role you have been given to play. There's nothing wrong with getting up every morning and being a mom and changing diapers or being a dad and whatever dads do. I don't know what we do. Yes, I do. That was a joke to make the ladies like me. That's what that was for. No, we focus on what God has told you He wants. Instead, we want to use our gifts often. We use the gifts we've been given as tools to bludgeon people into letting us serve, completely ignoring what God has said about love and how worthless our works are when they lack it. We want to justify our actions no matter how unchristlike they may be because we've honestly convinced ourselves that, well, I mean well, I meant well. No human being means well. Or actually, everybody means well. We're just sinners, so it doesn't matter. We will justify whatever we want to justify. We need to know this about ourselves and it needs to die. We want to lead. We want to be examples and help others and encourage them, but we're filled with self-centered reasons for it. We secretly hope to make ourselves great, giving lip service to this. This is my zeal for God. I want to do His will and glorify Him. All these things are an attempt to establish our own righteousness. 
rather than to rest with all our confidence on the righteousness given to us by grace through faith in Christ. So that my Christian life is not me trying to live up to anything or earn anything that I've been given for free. But is the simple result of being set free and being forgiven and being made righteous. You are free to lose your life. You don't need to win. You don't need to be the best. You don't need to have everybody look up to you. You don't need any of it. Believer, you are perfectly righteous in Christ. You are fully accepted by God. All your sins are forgiven. Not because God doesn't take it seriously, but because only His Son's blood can forgive sins. And only His Son's righteousness is acceptable to Him. Receive it and then walk in it. Walk in it as what you are. If God wants you to be something else, He'll make you something else. We don't need any righteousness added to that which is given through faith in Christ. Do what Scripture says. When you want to glorify God and you want to live for Him and please Him, do what Scripture says. Don't make up your own stuff. He doesn't want it and it doesn't do anything but interrupt your faith and your hope. And will end up hurting others as well. This is why the Gospel is so central in all the epistles to unity. Because where the Gospel isn't believed, there isn't unity. Because everybody's fighting for a position. When everyone believes they must add to the righteousness of Christ and establish something of their own, zeal for God will become a justification for treating others like garbage and dragging them through the mud in the name of our zealous pursuit of God. If we don't believe the gospel, there is only chaos in the church. It's a shooting gallery where our weapons are our own means of becoming righteous rather than by living by faith alone in Christ. Zeal for God must be according to the knowledge of His Word, which is the only thing that reveals His will for us. We don't need to establish ourselves as anything, beloved. Saving the church and saving Christianity, neither of those two things are up to us. The church has survived through brutal attack and murder for 2,000 years. It's not going to crumble because you missed a class or something. All right? It's not going to crumble because you got weak and couldn't fight the fight anymore. That's not on your shoulders. We don't need to be seen or heard unless God makes it happen. We need faith much more than we need zeal. God, give me faith so that I will trust in you and never trust in myself. Help me. Ask yourself why you want to serve God and what you are trying to accomplish by it. And ask the Holy Spirit to guide you if you dare. Some of us just want God to approve of what we want to do. And we've convinced ourselves in our own carnality that He does because we want to do it really bad. Zeal is not anything to look to. And Paul will get into proper zeal later on in Romans. Zeal to be righteous before God, that's a killer. Call on the name of the Lord that He might save you from sin and death. 
call on the name of the Lord that He might save you from yourself, from ourselves, and the havoc we wreak when our zeal for God is not according to knowledge. Have faith in God. Learn from the Spirit how to properly read the Scriptures, even the Old Testament. It's, it's, it, Christ doesn't take you back to live by a rule book. That's not how we read the Old Testament. Have faith in Christ. Receive His Word. It is for you. It is for you. All of you.